Good morning, good afternoon, good evening or good night. My name is Captain Jess Ward and this is my submission for the 2018 Lavrak Papers. The theme of the papers are combined arms in the Future Combat Brigade and what you will shortly hear is a combined arms effort from the junior officers of the Townsville Garrison. Each corps of the Combat Brigade is represented by a junior officer who will discuss how they see their corps enhancing combined arms or how their corps will be interoperable in the Future Combat Brigade. Unfortunately, due to late notice conflict, the Royal Australian Infantry and Royal Australian Corps of Transport are not represented in this podcast. Of note prior to commencing, please be aware that the views expressed within this podcast are not representative of any other person or organisation outside of the speaker themselves. My name is Captain Trent Lamb. I'm currently the Regimental Technical Adjutant at the 2nd Cavalry Regiment. I'm going to focus on the Armoured Cavalry Regiment with inside the Combat Brigade. There have been a large number of changes within the ACR recently, and there have been a large number of changes that will occur in the foreseeable future. Firstly, I'll discuss recent changes to the ACR. The significant difference being the modification of the ACR structure, seeing the loss of the Armoured Personnel Carrier Squadron or the Lift Squadron, and the creation of an additional Combat Reconnaissance Vehicle Squadron based on ASLAV. The Armoured Personnel Carrier Squadron has been integrated into one of the battalions as an integral asset within inside the Combat Brigade. The creation of an additional CRV Squadron prevents, uh, presents an opportunity for the Combat Brigade, that being that the Brigade can conduct medium-range reconnaissance on two avenues of approach, where under the original Plan Beersheba model, this was limited to one avenue of approach, the second being covered by enabling assets from 6 and 16 Brigade. This gives the Combat Brigade a greater ability to inform the Brigade Commander's PIRs, allowing a higher level of tempo within the Combat Brigade. The CRV Squadron is the cornerstone of medium reconnaissance within the Australian Army. There is no other organisation which provides the persistent level of surveillance that it provides. Secondly, the installation of MFOX, or the Mounted Family of Computer Systems, within the M1, A1 and M88 fleets, has improved the C4I systems within those fleets to a level which allows those systems to integrate into the Combat Brigade's C4I architecture. The tank squadron has been BMS enabled. This supports a combat team uh, actions. Looking, at, uh, looking to future developments within the ACR, it is difficult to look past Land 400 of Phase 2 and the introduction to service of the Boxer CRV. The introduction of this pl- platform to service will enable the CRV squadron to achieve things which were impossible with ASLAV. The Boxer CRV provides an enhanced level of protection to crewmen, an improved level of firepower through the Lance two-person 30mm turret and the Spike ATGM, giving it the ability to destroy main battle tanks. The Boxer's enhanced C4I system will seamlessly integrate with that of the combat brigades, something which isn't the case with ASLAV, using the legacy fleet of radios and communications equipment. The introduction to service of the Boxer CRV will impact the mission because commanders will accept greater, greater risk due to the increased capability of the vehicle. The improved C4I system will enable the CRV squadrons and the ACR as a whole to better integrate into the combat brigades. The enhanced C4I system will assist in creating a common operating picture, adding additional sensors to the brigade. This improvement comes at the cost it is likely that the level of cognitive load on the crewman, namely the crew commander, will increase. 
Looking further into the future, the development and installation of weapon-enabled BMS will change how the battle is fought, allowing targets to be marked by one system and targeted by another, in a similar fashion to how the American Kiowa and Apaches work together as hunter-killer teams. This will enable the CRV squadron to remain below the detection threshold, as the squadron could mark targets which could be prosecuted by an armed UAV, precision artillery, or a main battle tank. I believe that in order to prepare to operate in future combined arms teams, there needs to be a focus on training with C4I systems, especially BMS. Being able to operate BMS needs to, be, uh, needs to become as familiar to soldiers of all ranks as the operation of their rifle. It's very, uh, very well done, very formal. I don't think mine's going to be really as slick. <laughs> Great. Okay, so my name is uh, Lieutenant Wade Higgins. I'm uh, an FO or a JFT commander from uh, 4 Regiment, uh, 3 Brigade. Uh, I'm here to talk about uh, the future of, uh, of uh, artillery or potential future. Uh, so the future lies uh, in uh, the fact that fires are most likely to be more lethal, uh, to be able to fire further and to be more accurate uh, than what we have today. So currently within the, uh, the artillery orbit, we have uh, precision guidance uh, kits and uh, munitions which include smart rounds and Excalibur uh, PGMs. Now, within the Australian Army experience, um, they've been considered uh, rather expensive and uh, a rather exotic uh, capability. Um, certainly the future will uh, see those rounds become more uh, uh, preferable in terms of uh, our options and certainly more uh, cheap and hence we'll see more of the, more engagement with those uh, weapons. Um, this will allow uh, artillery to be much more uh, accurate, much more responsive, and the challenge, I suppose, for our core and for the uh, supporting core signs will be learning how to integrate uh, those capabilities and those uh, uh, rounds specifically into their manoeuvre plan. Uh, so specifically, it allows us uh, to incapacitate uh, the enemy uh, through um, uh, the, the, the guided targeting of um, nodes, of uh, CPs and uh, supply nodes, rather than uh, just destroying a thousand uh, tanks um, and incapacitating them physically, uh, we're rather undermining uh, their ability to respond um, and to command. Uh, further to that, uh, on the horizon, we see such uh, deep voice capabilities as, uh, as HIMARS. Uh, that is a uh, high mobility artillery rocket system. Uh, that comes with two capabilities, both uh, rocket assisted and a missile system. Um, the uh, rockets which enable the, uh, which are used in the HIMARS are accurate out to about uh, 70 kilometers. Um, and that missile system is actually accurate out to uh, 300 kilometers. Um, now that allows us uh, to uh, support such things as the, the cavalry uh, medium recon capability and, and the deep strike or deep flight, uh, deep fight uh, capability. Um, it has been called uh, such things as the grid square removal system or the grid square killer. Um, and it uh, comes with added bonuses of being able to uh, provide the Australian army with uh, route denial or uh, anti-access area denial. Um, it's also been proven to be uh, successfully fired uh, off of a uh, ship onto land and vice versa from land, uh, denying uh, sea routes uh, as well. 
Um, so that's certainly a, a big development in terms of the Australian Army's uh, long-range fires uh, capability. Um, maintaining my uh, artillery hat badge, but moving over to perhaps a GBAD uh, uh, sphere, uh, we are potentially introducing a system called uh, NASAMS, it's, which stands for uh, the National or Norwegian Advanced Surface-to-Air uh, Missile System. Um, now, currently, our key GBAD asset is the RVS-70, uh, which is a very short range uh, man pad uh, uh, air defense capability. The, the, the NASAMS system, if I can call it that, uh, fires the, uh, the AIM-120 uh, advanced and medium range uh, air, to air, uh, air to air missile, however it's from the surface uh, uh, launching pad. Um, now these, uh, these, uh, these surface to air uh, launching capability is actually very small. Uh, it'll, it'll allow us to um, move uh, many uh, pods uh, around the battle space attached to something as small and as light as the uh, PMV light uh, variant or Hawkeye um, and allows us also to uh, have much greater standoff ability being able to be fired uh, remotely from uh, 25 kilometers. Uh, very different capability uh, to what we currently have in the RBS uh, 70. Um, it also has a, a range of uh, 15 to 20 kilometers uh, with a radar detecting and tracking range uh, of up to 180 kilometres. So just some, uh, some key changes there uh, that we'll see in the next, say, uh, 10 to 15 uh, years um, that will greatly enhance uh, the uh, artillery's ability to support uh, the Australian Army's manoeuvre capability. And that's it for me. I'm Captain Aaron Garnham, the Intelligence Officer for 3rd Battalion, Royal Australian Regiment. The views expressed in this podcast are my own and do not reflect Army or Defence policy. Army is commencing the largest level of modernisation since World War II. This will provide both opportunities and risks to the combat intelligence professional of 2030. Opportunities in the level of information, but risks in the need to conduct greater levels of analysis to value add to this information. The 2006 Australian Defence White Paper indicated that enabling systems, such as intelligence, are key priorities in order for Army to fully exploit this modernisation. The phrase, strengthen analytical capability, is the phrase the White Paper uses and what I will refer to you. To be useful to the 2030 Combat Brigade, the strength and analytical capability must focus on combat intelligence. Simply described, intelligence needs to maintain focus on the enemy, utilising the parameters of weather and terrain. Terrain being divided into PMECPT, PT, being political, military, economic, social, infrastructure, information, physical environment and time. Using these parameters, combat intelligence will focus on the most pertinent elements to the commander to complete their mission. Considerations to the potential operating environment 2030 have been presented by the United States Training and Doctrine Command, or TRADOC, outlining 12 key trends for future operating environments, being big data, power generation storage, cyberspace, collective intelligence, technology engineering and manufacturing, climate change and resource competition, artificial intelligence, human-computer interaction, demographics and urbanisation, increased levels of human performance, economic rebalancing and robotics. The increase in lethality, precision and protection by the 2030 formation, battle group and combat team headquarters will be matched by the increase in sensors, feeds, both live and recorded, and data capture. The opportunity that will, uh, this will form and enable combat intelligence with raw information like never before. Further data will go some way in developing assessments and possible outcomes. However, this increase in feeds will generate two key risks for the next generation of combat intelligence professionals. First in that the level of information is not exploited to its fullest capability. 
There may be a trend that with the advent of live feeds and increased sensors that the combat intelligence professional will recede into an echelon and second line roles. To be relevant as part of the strengthened analytical capability, combat intelligence professionals must be at hand to create concise, useful and actionable intelligence to the commander. The command intelligence member, wrong, combat intelligence member will make order out of the chaos. The second risk is that the level of information flowing into the intelligence analyst will be so vast that the core develops into a first line data management system and cannot focus on first line analysis and providing value to the commander. Effectively, this will relegate the analyst into a reactive role of newsreaders rather than presenting plausible and actionable intelligence in a timely manner to support the commander's decision-making cycle. To confront these risks, three key actions will develop the strengthened analytical capability of the 2030 Combat Brigade. First is developing formation-level ISR, coordinated by the Formation S2 self. This explosion of sensors will see the need for command, control and communication of these assets in order to achieve both efficiencies and reduce the likelihood of circular reporting. Second, a culture of combat team S2s at all level with tactically proficient and technologically savvy operators. By developing on the increased level of feeds, combat intelligence at the combat team level across the formation will allow for value added reports at each level. The combat team S2s will be able to provide context and significance to initial reports. This must be supported by dedicated and robust communication from combat team to formation intelligence cells that operates both up and down the chain for maximum effectiveness. And third is the investment into correct programs, training and tools to be utilised. The previously mentioned trends for future operations by TRADOC will see intelligence professionals work closer with big data, cyberspace, collective intelligence and artificial intelligence. The core needs to focus on analytical tools that will reduce the strain generated by big data. The employment of artificial intelligence and machine learning will provide opportunities to develop effective first-line analysis, for example, scrapes of social media platforms within the operating environment, that will enhance analytical rigour. The use of programs and systems that will take the load of first-line, primarily data analysis, will allow combat intelligence professionals to concentrate on key areas of concern to the commander. Ideally, this will be captured in a centrally controlled but shared intelligence database. In conclusion, the operating environment in 2030 will be more congested, more complex and more competitive. The capabilities and platforms uh, provide possible threat force elements we'll have by 2030 will see a reduction in the technological advantage Australia currently enjoys. This increased the significance of intelligence to create a tactical advantage. The platforms due or likely to come into service run the risk of making combat intelligence professionals redundant if they do not focus on adding value at each level of command and enhancing the intelligence cycle and then distributing to the lowest possible level. To provide strength and analytical capability, the combat intelligence professional of 2030 will need to be more adaptive, connective and technologically and tactically proficient in order to provide the best advice to the commander in a timely manner. G'day, my name's Captain Rihanna Velo. I'm the S35 of the 3rd Combat Engineer Regiment in Townsville, and I'm here today to talk to you about military engineer effect in the future combat brigade. As a combat engineer regiment, our mission is to enable the force to live, move and fight. We achieve this through our engineer functions of mobility, countermobility, survivability and sustainability, enabling combined arms operations. The Corps recognises that we must balance individual to collective training progression across current and emerging capability with the requirement to integrate military engineer effect within combined, joint and interagency teams. 
As this mission is nested within the context of support to operations, it necessitates that planned and contingency force elements must be versatile, adaptable, and enabled to deliver ubiquitous and specialist capabilities. Force modernization on our horizon includes something like Plan Keo. I'm not gonna bother trying to explain that to you guys. Enhanced gap crossing capabilities, future CBRN defense capability, counter IED and explosive hazard, C&D vehicle fleet replacement, operational infrastructure, future emergency responder platforms, as well as the big one, the armored engineer capability that we all love to toot with. Amongst this is the swathe of ongoing soldier combat ensemble modernization, digitization of the force, communications and battle management system being developed and upgraded constantly. So what does it all mean for us? Collectively, this modernization will deliver enhanced and enabled operational military engineer effect in support of the Australian Army in operations. Through rose-tinted glasses, our ability to enable the combat brigade to live, move and fight with our habitual integration and relations will be realised. But at what cost? Individual training liability, even without considering collective, is enormous, even overwhelming. Synchronisation of Army and Defence recognised training and qualification with their civilian equivalents becomes burdensome and counterintuitive in most cases. The restructure of Army and Defence's training and learning delivery is happening, but it still impedes our ability to maintain proficiency and competency growth, let alone skill maintenance and investment in core soldier and sapper skill sets. Opportunities to integrate through a must, opportunities to integrate must be pursued through effective combined arms planning, which demands of direct command units that as ambassadors of our professional mastery, we pursue combined arms training opportunities relentlessly. As Royal Australian Engineers, a combat engineer regiment must achieve training levels and standards relevant to the force gen cycle they're in as aligned with our core mission essential task list. Our CMETs include planning engineer operations, command control and coordination of engineer operations, material exploitation, construction, mobility support operations, counter-mobility, survivability, winning resources, and probably as a capstone, enabling those engineer operations. Granted, some of these are very niche specialty engineer tasks, but majority of them should be conducted in a combined arms environment in order to provide realistic and challenging training to our junior leaders, supporting those combat corps directly and also supporting or enabling those units or teams providing the combat service support function. So often we have to reschedule one Charlie, three Charlie, even five Charlie training achievement in order to support MPSRs international engagement, the training institutions that are understaffed and under-resourced. In summary, our ability as a corps to enable the combat brigade to live, move and fight is hampered so often by the requirement to generate and maintain the qualifications, certification and professional mastery of our ubiquitous and specialist skills. When the human aspect of our capability is the central pivot point of all our modernisation, a balance must be struck between the competing priorities of our evolving force structure with the maintenance of an unforgiving force gen cycle. Thanks for listening. I hope I've given you something to think about. This is Captain Rihanna Velo signing off. Follow the sapper. My name is Jacob Marshall. I'm the regimental signals officer of the 2nd Cavalry Regiment. 
I'll present two ideas relating to the Royal Australian Corps of Signals role in the future combined arms team, focusing on communications at the division and below level. Firstly, I'll present an argument for a change to radio communication security that we could make now in the short term. And secondly, I'll present a hypothesis relating to communications utilizing technology termed operationally responsive space. Finally, I'll conclude with some general points that I think are important to note for future, uh, for current and future combined arms communications. I'll begin with communication security. There's two reasons why cryptographic security is a serious undertaking in defense. Firstly, and most obviously, we don't want an enemy discovering our key, which would allow them to unlock and listen in on our communications. Secondly, and less obvious to most people, is that the mathematical background workings of the algorithms we use for encryption on radio networks are actually classified. In my opinion, classifying cryptographic algorithms is simply an old policy still enforced in the days when governments were the only entities able to create and use effective encryption. This doesn't have to be the case anymore. We could quite easily change this and use publicly available algorithms for encryption. There's a huge amount of publicly available cryptographic algorithms available nowadays. One of these is a in a specific configuration is already authorized to protect information up to the top secret level. The easiest way to understand why this is possible is to consider classified government computer networks. These rely on commercial hardware, which can only employ public encryption algorithms. As a result, if this same encryption was employed on combat radios, only the key itself would require protection to maintain security because the mathematical background workings of the algorithm are already known. This may seem counterintuitive to security, but it's logical and secure. Knowing the mathematical workings of an algorithm doesn't mean that it is any less secure. The cultural change that would be required uh, to employ this type of encryption and defense would lead us further towards employment of devices such as smartphones. This is a whole separate topic in itself, but essentially with the correct checks and balances, we could see soldiers using apps similar to, similar to WhatsApp in the medium term. In my opinion, this sort of intuitive communication should be our aim within the combined arms team of the future. If people want to learn more about this topic, uh, search for the National Security Agency's Sweet B encryption on the internet. My second topic is a long-term vision coined operationally responsive space, a term I borrow from the operationally responsive space office of the United States Air Force. Essentially, operationally responsive space is the launching of smaller and cheaper satellites much faster than conventional projects would. In my context, I'm suggesting that in the future, there could be the capability to launch one or more small satellites that could replace large satellites after disablement or add additional redundancy to a geographic area. I want to provide a, f a few examples. Firstly, the United States Air Force Operationally Responsive Space Office takes about three years and $100 million to launch one conventional large satellite, as opposed to 10 years and $1 billion in a traditional project. The second example is a, com is a commercial company, Sky and Space Global, who are in the process of launching a worldwide, comparatively cheap satellite phone constellation using shoe-sized Wrong, using shoebox size satellites that cost only $64,000 each, not including the launch costs. To cover the entire world, they're planning on launching 200 satellites. Lastly, the US government have a number of other projects in the works. Two interrelated projects they're working on are water cooler sized imaging satellites and using an F-15 as a relatively cheap launch platform. As can be imagined, there's no shortage of constraints in any attempt to employ such a system. Some problems that I see as very difficult to overcome are firstly the cost. Uh, this will of course reduce in the future, but will always be expensive. Another problem is the launch system. We have to consider will we launch rockets from Australia uh, inside the divisional theatre or will we launch from an aircraft. 
The next constraint is the ground stations. Who would control these satellites and where would these control stations be? <clears throat> Finally, uh, the orbit height and the orbit trajectory and period. These small satellites would likely sit best in a uh, low, low, earth, low Earth orbit. Uh, and they only have a three-month life at that height. There's no practical way to make a single low-Earth orbit satellite sit over one ge geographic position, and therefore multiple satellites would have to be launched on a specific path for a coverage of a desired area. In the long term, I see a division allocated a minor stockpile of small satellites that can be launched within a 24-hour period to aid in tactical communication. For more info on this and related topics, search for the DARPA CIMI project, the DARPA Airborne Launch Assist Space Access and the Sky and Space Global. Both operationally responsive space and the overhaul of communication security in defense are two key, effect, uh, two key efforts I see as enabling the future combined arms team. By way of closing, it's obvious to those who have been around longer than I that there is a continuing problem with integration. It's important for everyone to note that as we progress into the future, there'll be more and more communications and more and more electronic systems employed within defense. Unfortunately, I think this integration problem is pervasive and requires significant effort from many stakeholders to mitigate or overcome. Hello, my name is Captain Rob Roman. I'm the S4 posted to the 3rd Battalion, the Royal Australian Regiment. The following discussion piece is entirely my own opinion and in no way does it reflect the Australian Army or the Australian Defence Force. Today I'll be very briefly discussing the future of supply or ordnance within the Australian Army and in particular the challenges and perhaps changes to the supply chain that Army might see going into the foreseeable future. The general scope of the discussion will be the introduction of Land 400 and Land 121 vehicles and the complexity that that will introduce to supply. I will also discuss the need to close what I would consider will become a gap in the supply chain, particularly in the forward echelons and how we can close this gap by land or with the use of drones. The future of supply and warfare very much depends on the future of the conduct of warfare. Supply in many ways must remain reactive and responsive. Land 400 and Land 121 have and will continue to see a noticeable size difference, specifically with vehicles such as the Boxer replacing the Aslav, the 40 Mike and HX-77 replacing the Unimog and the Mac, the Hawkeye and the yet-to-be-confirmed replacement for the M113 AS4. This coupled with an increased focus on the combined arm style of warfare will add a lot of complexity and higher volumes of demand from the supply chain. Some key factors of change may be the speed at which the fight is executed and the inevitable increase in demand and distance distribution that will be required to keep up with new technologies as they emerge. With increased speed, manoeuvrability, firepower and complexity of technology, the gap will occur when the rate of resupply cannot keep up with the supply requirements. This may be for various reasons, such as parts and supply store shortages, increased distance and volume requirements, supply echelons not being able to keep up with the demands, and the list goes on. It is also important to identify where these gaps might take place. Due to the increased speeds of motorised and mechanised F echelons, I foresee these gaps occurring somewhere between the A1 and the B echelon. This is not to say the A2 echelon will suffer the most, but the link from the A1 to the A2 echelon and the A2 to the B echelon may be under the most amount of stress and the most thinned out into the foreseeable future. This is for a variety of reasons. One, as mentioned, the increase in vehicle size. Two, increased requirement for equipment parts in the front line. Three, the speed at which combined arms warfare can and likely will be conducted 
particularly if you factor in the strides in, digitiz in digitization and communication speed and detail increasing. Four, the complexity of a combined arms team sees many different platforms being synchronized to great effect. This increases the supply burden due to the specialist requirements of each piece of equipment and the requirement to maintain and sustain them concurrently to many other types of equipment. And five, CSS ConOps will continue to provide challenges, particularly in the A1 echelons. Supply will need to continue to be task organized, especially in the combined arms environment where each specialization within the combined arms team has specific requirements which continue to become more complicated, mainly due to technological advances. So how can these gaps be bridged without having a detrimental effect on the warfighting itself? In my opinion, in a lot of ways, the Army is on its way to achieving this by way of self-protected supply chains. It's all well and good to defend a BMA or a CSST, but we must continue to develop self-protected logisticians en route to the distribution point and at the distribution point. This can alleviate some of the F echelon's burden of protecting their supply assets, as well as, as, well as allowing the A and B echelons to maintain security while resupplying F echelons moving forward at a greater speed than ever. The new Land 121 vehicles come in protected and unprotected variants. Using them in a balanced fashion at the right time can produce excellent results for the future of supply. Another option to investigate is drones for delivery of items. Not everything will be suitable for such delivery methods, but if we're talking about your small RPS pieces, medical supplies, or even small amounts of rations to forward units, this may be a good gap closer. Drones can be autonomous or semi-autonomous. They can be hard to target, and this method of gap closure could allow for supply personnel to concentrate on the bigger ticket items, such as bulk fuel or water distribution, and allow them to spend more time training in warfare to facilitate self-protection rather than spending their time sifting through small pieces that can be sent forward faster by drones. In conclusion, this will continue to evolve in an interesting way with emerging technology and the increased speed and complexity of conflict. But as I stated, the gaps need to be addressed in ways other than traditional transport across terrain. Looking to the skies might be the next big thing in the future of the supply chain. Thank you for your attention. Hello, I'm Captain Jessica Ward, the current adjutant of the 3rd Combat Signal Regiment, and I'll be discussing maintenance in the future combat brigade. I'll break this discussion primarily into two fields, being what we can do now to best prepare the combat brigade to overcome future maintenance issues, and secondly, I'll look to a futuristic concept to expand operator maintenance on the battlefield. With the introduction of many new capabilities through projects such as Land 8120 for engineer support platforms, Land 121 and its series of phases, including the introduction of medium weight, medium heavy vehicles and PMVLs, Land 400 for the combat vehicle systems and Land 52 for the unrolling of the NFE replacement, to name only a few, the Army is becoming a lot more equipment reliant. With the introduction of this equipment comes a larger maintenance bill. The constraints of RAMI and contracted solutions have been analysed and examined by people much smarter than me, so I'll discuss two relatively easy and cost-neutral things that can be done to ease this burden slightly. To directly quote the Commander Forcom Directive 6817, Effective maintenance underpins Army's warfighting capability, whether deployed or undertaking raised train sustained activities. Within that same document and echoed in the subordinate garrison maintenance directives across FORCOM, it has been recognised that in order to achieve a high level of equipment capability and therefore operational readiness, commanders must take the lead in creating a culture of equipment stewardship. Changing the mindset of commanders from the top down in order to place a degree of importance on preventative maintenance through operator maintenance and equipment husbandry will assist in reducing corrective and breakdown maintenance. 
This can be done through something as simple as a change in battle rhythm. This can be dedicating time for operators and condu to conduct preventative maintenance under the guidance of the integral RAMI assets, be that through central presentations or walkthrough of the vehicle base during this time. It can also be achieved by commanders ensuring they amend their own battle rhythm to walk through the bays and inspect the platforms and associated NTIs, for example. As the saying goes, if it is of interest to the commander, it is of importance to me. Commanders who cultivate a culture of maintaining high equipment capability in what is becoming a heavier and more mobile and interoperable fighting force will reap the benefits on the battlefield. Those that do not invest in changing the mindset of their subordinates and emphasising preventative maintenance will place a greater pressure on the logistics system and their own creativity should that equipment not be usable or attainable through other means in time. The second proposed fix to increase capability within the combat brigade is a little more complex and will take a little more time. This is changing the posting plots for new tradesmen. Noting the scant number of tradesmen in first line units and the growing push for anything outside of light grade repair to be pushed rearward, it is advantageous for newly qualified tradesmen to spend their first posting in an FSB or CSSB prior to posting forward. I will use the example of ECM 421s in the CSR. There are currently two positions for a 421 or a boffin to the layman within the unit establishment for the, three, for the CSR. Noting the requirement for promotional courses, personal circumstances, medical downgrades and time taken on conducting other, other than maintenance tasks within a regiment, it is unlikely that at any given time there is only one 421 conducting maintenance on the shop floor or a deployable into the field. Due to this, that 421 is the SME to the CO in all aspects of their role, which according to the MAE is the repair and maintenance of radios, optical instruments, electro-optical or electromechanical systems, radar systems, electronic vehicle control systems and electronic surveillance equipment. This is an incredibly important role within a, within a CSR and will understandably only increase in further with further communication systems and technology being introduced into service in the future in order for the Australian Army to be competitive on the battlefield. This lone 421 or even the event of having both 421s should not be a brand new tradesman. A new sending a new tradesman to an FSB or CSSB will enable the careful mentoring of the member under much more experienced members as well as exposing the tradesman to a deeper level of repair on a wider range of equipment. Giving tradesmen time within third and fourth line support prior to moving into second or first line also gives the member an understanding of the opportunities and constraints of close and national maintenance support. This will further enhance their ability to provide advice and guidance to the commander on equipment availability. Finally, I would like to discuss a much more science fiction-like look at the future of maintenance support in the combat brigade and how operators can conduct much more advanced maintenance to enhance capability uh, availability on the field. In 2006, John Scalzi published one of my favourite science fiction books, which was the sequel to his previous work, Old Man's War. This was The Ghost Brigades. In this work, Scalzi explores a concept whereby soldiers have an implant placed in their brain that acts almost like an internal search engine thereby providing them with instant information on historical battles, tactical manoeuvres and identifying and breaking down enemy equipment. This may seem incredibly futuristic, however Elon Musk, my Staffordshire puppy's namesake and the brilliance behind the companies such as SpaceX, Tesla and The Boring Company has recently backed a brain-computer interface business called Neuralink. This business is looking at implanting hardware into the human brain which will merge with software to keep pace with advancements in AI. This will, be enhanced, uh, this will enhance the cognitive abilities of human being 
And where I see a potential, albeit in the very distant future, noting the level of research and medical testing required, is the advancement of the operator on the ground during conflict. Operators will be able to quickly look up and follow step-by-step -step guides to diagnosing maintenance issues and possibly rectifying them without the requirement for recovery and backload to conduct further maintenance, thereby maintaining the capability in fight. I'm sure there will be many more productive uses for this technology as well. And ending on a science fiction note for this discussion, I hope leaves you, the listener, with more innovative ideas of your own for future combat brigade. Despite the enduring fundamental nature of war, the character of war is always changing and each generation has had to find its feet in and predict the future of a new battlefield. Throughout this podcast, you have listened to the junior officers of 3 Brigade define some of the current constraints to providing combined armed support in the future combat brigade, and therefore, the enduring requirement for commanders to accurately prioritise any enabling support. You have heard about some of the predicted constraints of future warfighting and changes that can be made now to help bridge the gap. Most importantly, you have heard about the integration of new warfighting platforms and technologies that will assist in providing clarity to the future fog of war. Combined arms is the future of warfighting. Building relationships, theorising, learning, training and fighting as one combined and integrated team will help ensure success on the battlefield. With that in mind, I would like to close by thanking my peers and friends for their time and patience in participating in this podcast as well as their like-minded passion for the continued development of themselves and the organisation. Thank you.